traditional wildlife management has three legs to the stool, and it looks like two of those legs are very weak and crumbling. This is Defender Radio. And this is Defender Radio, the podcast for wildlife advocates and animal lovers, brought to you by the Fur Bearers. I want to take a quick moment to thank Sean and Eli, the very first two patrons that Defender Radio got. By supporting with just a few dollars a month, Sean and Eli gain access to exclusive contents not available anywhere else and ensure that our basic costs, like hosting fees, microphone cables, and digital subscriptions are covered. It also means a great deal to me personally. It shows that people really believe what we're doing with Defender Radio, and that stokes the flames that drive me to produce episodes, blogs, and videos every week. Thank you, Sean and Eli, and thank you to all of our other patrons for your support. If you'd like to learn more or contribute as little as $1 a month to support the show, just visit patreon.com slash defender radio that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash defender radio or follow the links on this week's show notes or the blog at thefurbears.com new research from dr adrian trevis and his colleagues doctors francisco santiago avila and Ari cornman highlights that lethal management of wolves to prevent depredation of livestock on properties in michigan may not only be ineffective but could be creating detrimental effects for neighboring properties. The paper, titled Killing Wolves to Prevent Predation on Livestock May Protect One Farm But Harm Neighbors, was published by Public Library of Science, or PLOS One, earlier this month. The researchers were given access to 16 years of data on wolf depredation and control in Upper Michigan, and used multiple methods to analyze it. What they found was, in their words, that... Given the evidence available, we cannot conclude that lethal management has the desired effect of preventing future livestock losses. They also found evidence of a spillover effect to other properties in the region. The questions raised by this study play into a paper soon to be published by Dr. Trevis with several colleagues in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, titled Intergenerational Equity Can Help to Prevent Climate Change and Extinction. This is an important subject that combines ethics, environmental sciences, and how we as a society, and as a species, must look at what we're doing today and how it will impact tomorrow's world. Dr. Adrian Trevis of the Carnivore Coexistence Lab at the University of Wisconsin-Madison joined Defender Radio to explore the implications of his latest wolf depredation study, the importance of adapting policies to match science, and how we can all play a role in safeguarding wildlife and the environment for future generations. We'll get to the interview after this quick message from our supporters. Looking for a parka that'll keep you warm in Canada's extreme winters and not harm the animals? Check out Woolly Outerwear, a Toronto-based, made-in-Canada ethical company that utilizes military-grade technology to keep you warm and help save the lives of animals. Portions of every sale go to support the fur bears and animal sanctuary. I embrace my wild side by wearing woolly, and you can too. Learn about their commitments to the environment, the animals, and the people they work with, as well as how to buy at woollyoutwear.com or anywhere on social media. Before we get into the, the wolf predation study, is to talk about Michigan. 
Uh, and if you could just sort of paint a picture for us as to what Michigan is like regarding livestock and ranching and wildlife. Uh, personally, I'm very unfamiliar outside of Detroit. So um, what, what does Michigan sort of look like in that way? Wolves are found in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan, which is uh, one of the colder regions of the United States, uh, dominated by quite a bit of coniferous forest, some deciduous trees as well. And typically livestock, uh, often beef cattle, sometimes sheep, are raised on small private fenced pastures and in fairly small herds. So we're talking a hundred head would be a large herd and um, a square kilometer fenced pasture would be a very large pasture in this setting. And what we have are also small wolf packs in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Namely, they average about four members in late winter. That's the breeding male and female and perhaps two young of the previous year that have stayed with their parents, or occasionally an immigrant that we think might be an unrelated animal joins those breeders. And uh, it's in that setting of these rather small wolf packs with fairly small territories, you know, about 150 square kilometer territories, uh, encountering livestock on these small pastures and we're not talking continuous farm after farm after farm, but more of a scattering of farms within uh, a wolf pack territory. So there might be half a dozen to a dozen such livestock operations near a given wolf pack. Okay, so it's not quite like when, when we've talked about these in the past, you and I and I in the reading I've done, it's typically more Midwestern or Western where we've got these large swatches of land with big wolf packs and, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of um, livestock animals. Um, so it is a different picture in that regard. And I think that's probably going to play into uh, the importance of this study. Um, that's right, Michael. Actually, uh, you're describing pretty accurately, as far as I can tell, the livestocking situation in the northern Rocky Mountain areas where wolves are also found. And our study in Michigan, although it's set in a different biophysical setting, we have uh, our results have important implications for the wolves and the livestock of the northern Rocky Mountains that I can come back to after I've described our study. Absolutely, and I think that's that's the next place to go is um, where this study started uh, for you and your colleagues. Uh, what was the the initial hypothesis or what data sets were you working with? Yeah, so we were uh, initially brought on board by a. Uh, a First Nations tribe, the Little River Band of Ottawa Indians. Mm -hmm. And uh, they have been negotiating with the state of Michigan for years, uh, with the tribe's position being that they want management to be both science-based and culturally sensitive. And a focus of the tribe's concern was management of wolves in Michigan. So they obtained all of the data on wolf management by the state of Michigan. They obtained that through a federal consent decree. That's like a, a judicial proceeding that doesn't really go to court. It's more okay. like arbitrated. And the federal consent decree gave them access to all these data, which they then shared with us to answer 
a very specific and, and common sense question. Is lethal management of wolves by the state of Michigan actually preventing livestock losses? And here, Michael, I want to just clarify for your listeners that this is a basic question we should be asking of all government interventions. Are they effective at what they're trying to do? And in the case of protecting livestock from predators, it's a very simple question. Is the government intervention actually reducing livestock losses in the future? Mm-hmm. And that's what we asked of the data. We examined the sites where lethal interventions were used, and namely, this is where the state contracts a U.S. federal agency to live trap and kill one or more wolves on or near a property that has a verified livestock loss. And when the state intervened lethally like that, we followed basically the fate of that property over time. And we compared the, that, those sorts of properties that had received lethal intervention to the properties that had not. And for many years, the state either did not have authority to kill wolves because of various federal legal procedures, or the state elected not to try to capture and kill wolves. And so we had these two sets of properties, those that had received this lethal intervention to kill wolves and wolves were killed, sometimes up to five at a site, and these other properties that did not have any uh, lethal intervention and a variety of different uh, interventions were offered to those landowners. We just treated all of those as our, our control for, against the lethal intervention. And then, we, by what I mean by following the fate of those properties over time is that we asked, okay, how long did it take for another verified case of wolf predation on livestock to occur? How long did it take before it recurred? And basically, we're looking for evidence that lethal intervention lengthened the time until recurrence, right? And that it delayed subsequent problems. We did not find that evidence. In other words, when the government intervened lethally or non-lethally, there was no statistically significant difference in the interval of time until the next verified livestock loss. Not only that, we looked beyond the property that was affected. And this is super important because very few or no studies have ever looked beyond to other livestock properties in the vicinity. And we found something startling. So let me go back to our primary result to explain what was startling. Our primary result is there's no statistically significant difference between when the state killed wolves and when the state did not kill wolves. No matter how many wolves they killed, we found no statistically significant difference. But we found something statistically insignificant, that a minority of farmers did experience benefits. A small minority had a longer delay until the next livestock loss. But that was completely nullified uh, or compensated for by an elevated risk for their neighbors in the same township. So other livestock owners near the site that had lethal intervention experienced higher livestock losses. And again, it was a minority of them and it was statistically insignificant. But any claim that lethal intervention was effective in preventing livestock losses at a local level has to acknowledge that it also caused a higher risk for neighboring livestock owners in the same township. 
we ultimately conclude that there's just no evidence that the state's plan for killing wolves to protect livestock worked. It didn't work. And they should have evaluated it the first year they began. Like all government interventions that are trying to fix something, they should have been using the tools of science to evaluate if it was actually fixing something and to detect these kinds of side effects. Because imagine the worst thing you're doing the worst thing the government can do is intervene, ineffectively raise livestock losses for this minority of farmers and help a few farmers, but spread the word that this is the way to go with mm -hmm. uh, a good preventive solution. That's the worst thing our government wants to do, especially when we're, taxpayers are paying the federal agency that's killing these wolves and livestock owners are not getting the relief that they would like to get. Well, and I think that sort of there's there are multiple follow ups to this. So I'm just going to sort of throw them at you in no particular order. All right. Um, the first of which is talking about the the impact of wolves. Then sort of dis it, one would imagine they disperse from the region or the area where the lethal control is taking place. Um, would there be an argument then for killing all the wolves? Like, would that resolve that side effect? Okay, yeah, that's a great question. I'm going to address that. So what happens, well, what we believe happens when the state of Michigan killed wolves is that they left quite a few survivors and the pack structure disintegrated. So, you know, the wolf uh, pack is a cooperative hunting unit. They help each other in many ways. They defend their territory together. They help the breeding male and female to raise pups. Mm -hmm. They sometimes help each other hunt. That cooperative unit was broken apart by the lethal intervention and we think the survivors scattered and that's why there were higher problems for the neighbors of the livestock owner if we're correct then there's also the possibility that those survivors create new packs so what you have in the wake of lethal intervention is the production of more wolves that are going to prey on livestock than there were before and if they establish packs and start breeding, you are likely to double or triple the problems you encounter. This is similar to what was found for cougars out in Washington state by a bunch of researchers uh, independent from us. All right, now you ask, well, does that justify uh, killing the entire pack? No, and here's why. Because you leave a vacancy. You kill an entire pack, you leave a vacancy, and newcomers are gonna come in and it's very possible that those newcomers come in and kill more livestock than the residents originally had done. Mm -hmm. and here's where our study speaks to the situation in the Northern Rockies and the wolves and livestock there. There's prior research from the Northern Rockies by state and federal agents that suggest that killing an entire pack will significantly delay the repetition of, of livestock losses. It'll significantly uh, help the livestock owners. That research has now been um, questioned by our findings because we used exactly the same methods as them with one big exception. And the exception is a step that team took in the Northern Rockies that we no longer believe is appropriate. They followed a wolf pack over time for years and years, even after it was killed. So there was no wolf pack there. They followed that empty territory for years, sort of keeping the clock ticking about how long until the next 
livestock loss occurred. Mm-hmm. Well, that's put that's adding together time when there is no wolf pack, and it takes sometimes months or even years for a new wolf pack to establish and the breeders to mate and raise pups and then for a livestock attack to occur. So what they were doing was inflating the apparent significance of the lethal control and they used the wrong control, the, that's a, the wrong experimental control. That would be like treating a, a sick patient in a hospital bed and then time, and if the patient dies, sadly, uh, timing how long it takes for that hospital bed to fill again with a new patient. That's not an appropriate measure of how your medical intervention worked. And we argue that their method is an inappropriate way to test if a lethal intervention worked. We also found some other problems with their statistical analyses not being explained fully. And we've asked them to revise, review their model and present all of the data transparently like we did for Michigan. Mm-hmm. So anybody can find, you know, test our results and verify them. So at the moment, what it looks like is that our Michigan study has uh, put back on the table the question of whether killing wolves protects livestock. And remember, the background to all this is that we do have gold standard experimental evidence for non-lethal methods protecting livestock from wolves. And these are two studies done by another team in Central Michigan University that we have no connections to, led by Dr. Tom Gehring. So remember, the state of Michigan started killing wolves without evaluating whether it worked. And then they had evidence from their own Michigan researchers showing that non-lethal methods did work with gold standard experimental evidence. That means a randomized trial where they were careful to avoid bias. So in the big picture, we're asking government agencies to be more responsible, more accountable, because they're trustees for the public's wildlife. They hold those wildlife in trust for future generations. They can't just kill them willy-nilly. They have to prove that what their government policies are doing is effective, is balancing the broad public interest, not some special interest group that might like to kill wolves. And this is a theme that uh, a lot of my recent work has focused on more. Government accountability, Mm -hmm. what does the public deserve? What do future generations deserve? And uh, what role does wildlife play in uh, protecting our rights to a healthy environment? And we're going to loop back into that because there is another paper that we're going to talk about. Uh, one of my follow-ups regarding the uh, the Michigan study is, and, and I'm not sure how to phrase this properly so it sort of has a full context, but in my job, I do a lot of reading, both on social media and of papers from researchers like yourself, uh, government policy and things like that. And what what I am seeing frequently are people who we will, for this instance, say, you know, livestock owners or people who are supportive of livestock owners uh, and ranchers who want to see lethal intervention used saying, well, it's science and saying, well, if we don't control the wolf population, you know, there's, they, they have no natural predators. And th- this happens when we talk about bears, we talk about coyotes, talk about birds of prey. And I have found a trend and this is, purely anecdotal based on my reading um, of people using the word science kind of like a baseball bat or a magic wand and saying, here is what I think. 
and then waving something around while shouting science at the top of their breath and then being like, so you can't argue with me. But when we actually look at the science, the, the science that's being conducted now, it's something entirely different. So how do we sort of talk about that science isn't just a, a magical word, whether we're talking, you know, government policy wonks who are saying, well, the science says this, but then not showing their work or, uh, and to be fair, advocates uh, like myself who say, well, the science says this, but not having a study to back it up. Right. So for a scientist like myself, the only evidence that's out there is peer-reviewed, published in high-quality scientific journals, period. So all of the things you're referring to are unsubstantiated claims from the point of view of a scientist. And what the public needs to know is that there is a standard for evidence out there. And it, like I said, the peer-reviewed scientific journals of high quality. Now, the scientific community has sometimes does mis missteps and publishes things that are wrong, and it takes a long time to correct. Uh, science is self-correcting. It, it is not perfect because it's a human endeavor. But that's a huge difference between the opinions you're talking about, where people just throw sort of the idea of evidence around. And that's why when we publish a peer-reviewed paper like this one on Michigan, we go to the media and we say this has withstood the, uh, the rigors of scientific peer review, which means anonymous and independent scientists have evaluated the quality of our analyses and interpretations and have given it the, at least the preliminary seal of approval. Uh, and that's very different than what some agencies do, which they do internal analyses that are riddled with conflicts of interest because, say, for instance, USDA Wildlife Services gets money. They get contracts from the state to do what they do to protect livestock. That is a financial conflict of interest that um, basically means they cannot evaluate their own effectiveness, even mm -hmm. though they'd like to. So those kinds of conflicts of interest are out there everywhere, and scientists have to disclose any before it can be peer-reviewed and published. So you'll see uh, in our acknowledgments, whatever conflicts we've gotten, whatever grants paid for our research are explained there transparently. So, Michael, I'd just like to get back to the point about transparency and accountability. Um, something is only science-based when it's gone through the process I described, and it often takes scientists quite a few years to debate back and forth and decide what is the best evidence. And I'd just like to alert your audience right now that that is going to continue to happen with wolf control because there's bad science out there, there's science that needs improvement, and there's preliminary stuff like ours, we admit it. We, we need a good, healthy scientific debate in which evidence is transparently presented for other scientists to evaluate. And that has not happened until our study because we published the data for everyone to see. Mm -hmm. Well, and that's, uh, I guess, the difficulty, and this is something, again, as a non-scientist that I do read yeah. about, is yeah. the need for uh, repeatability of research yep. and the lack of funding for that and at times a lack of interest in that. Um, Correct. Hugely important. Uh, it's a major stumbling block, especially when government agencies control the purse strings. Mm -hmm. So if a government agency does not like our results, they are not going to fund our work. So guess where we're not asking for money? We're not asking the state of Michigan for money because they control the purse strings and there's a conflict of interest there. 
this is something me and many scientists are concerned about. It affects scientific integrity. And I have to remind my colleagues across the scientific community that the place where the funding comes from has to be scrutinized carefully. We have to be ready to turn down grants if the donor is going to insist on us saying particular things. So we, we need to uh, we need to say what the data tell us, and we need to account to the broad public for our science, not to our donors. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think that is the, the great place to skip over to the other study, which I really do believe has a strong connection here. And this is something I've heard you talk about. You did a, a webinar with us on this subject, and it's something you and I have talked about in other interviews. The title is Intergenerational Equity Can Help to Prevent Climate Change and Extinction. And it's a very big idea that is, it, it, I'll be honest, it's intimidating to read. And just the name of the, the author names uh, are names I all recognize. They are respected conservationists and researchers. Um, but what it boils down to in, in sort of very, very simple layman's terms is we have a responsibility to the future to be better than we are right now. Um, and I think you can probably be more eloquent about it though. Uh, so could you explain like, how does this, uh, this, it just seems like such a big idea. How does it begin? Okay. And, uh, thanks Michael. That was a pretty good summary. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I'm sorry if there was anything intimidating about that article. It's a short commentary, so it's a quick read. There is one, you know, word with a lot of syllables that mm -hmm. I'll, I'll try my best to explain, but we worked really hard with the editorial team at the journal, this is the scientific journal called Nature, Ecology, and Evolution. We worked really hard with that team to make this accessible to anybody, uh, you know, anybody to read. So the big term that's right there in the title that might be intimidating is intergenerational equity, but it's a very simple idea. Future generations have the same rights as we do, equal rights as current generations, right? That means that youth today and their children, our grandchildren, have the same rights as we do. Um, that's written into our Constitution, in this case, the U.S. Constitution, but also the constitutions of um, all, all of the countries that have constitutions around the world ensure that future generations have equal rights. Now, we use that to look at the rights to a healthy environment. And that's a very different right. Not all constitutions include it. Notably, our two countries, Michael, U.S. and Canada, do not mention the environment. Nevertheless, there are constitutional protections for the environment. And what we tried to focus on in this article was the three quarters of the countries around the world, 144 nations, that do have constitutional provisions to protect the environment. Now, those protections vary. Uh, most notably, some constitutions guarantee people a right to a healthy environment. That's the strongest level of constitutional protection. Other constitutions uh, obligate their governments to protect the environment for the future. And then there's a small number of countries like the US and Canada that are mute. They say nothing about the environment. Nevertheless, both the US and Canada have a common law principle called the public trust doctrine, mm -hmm. which does afford protection for the environment. It prohibits 
the government from either doing or allowing substantial impairment to the environment, including wildlife, and including, we believe, the atmosphere. So that's why our article is both about climate change and about extinction of species, and this duty we have to future generations. Now let me get down to a very practical level. And in my 20 years of following conservation practice and being a conservation practitioner, I have never seen the following remedy done. So I'm guilty too. Okay. We need to give an equal say to youth and to future generations or their you know, legitimate representatives of future generations. We need to give those groups an equal say as current adults get about the use of biodiversity the use of, of species, the use of the atmosphere. If we don't give them an equal say, we're disenfranchising them. We're violating their constitutional rights. And therefore, basically every conservation practice I've been involved in for the last 20 years has been somewhat illegitimate and definitely unethical. So I'm, we're, we're calling for reform of the entire conservation endeavor to pay attention to this intergenerational equity. It's a very interesting concept right now, I think, with all the different things we're talking about in society in North America, to see how this may play into sort of pre preserving for the future. But I, so I've got two big ones I want to talk about here. One is the concept of and I'm just looking at one of your figures just as a sort of a reminder to myself. The value of a population versus the value of individuals. Um, so, you know, the concept of uh, compassionate conservation. Um, and one of the things that comes up a lot in conversations about conservation is that the population is healthy. Therefore, we don't need to be concerned. Um, a good example for our listeners is the Vancouver Island wolf trapping policy that we've been talking about lately. Um, the government says there appears to be a healthy population, so it doesn't hurt if we trap more. Uh, and that to me feels like a hurdle right now in conservation today, let alone for the future. So how do we interpret that as part of this theory of uh, intergenerational equity? that just because there's a healthy population today doesn't mean we manage it differently for tomorrow. Yeah, so I'm going to give you a slightly unsatisfying response, Michael. And that's, <laughs> and that's because I'm not uh, an ethicist and I'm not trained in ethics. Okay. I'm, I'm doing catch-up. I'm reading and I'm learning from my colleagues. So I'd encourage you to invite William Lynn or Francisco Santiago Avila, my co-authors on this paper, mm -hmm. who are trained in ethics. But this is what I understand as a, as, a, as a newcomer to ethics. If you begin your entire life with the, with the value judgment that an individual animal has value, that is going to change fundamentally and dramatically what management actions you feel comfortable taking when you intervene in that animal's life. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, if you believe an individual animal's life has value, you are going to realize that you can only kill that animal when you have 
uh, a very serious obligation for another organism's well-being. In other words, we can many of us can justify killing a predator that is threatening our children. Right, the individual predator's life is considered, uh, from my own perspective, less important than my child's life. Yep. But as soon as you step away from that very immediate threat to human life, it becomes less clear. Livestock are private property. They do not necessarily, their lives do not necessarily outweigh the importance of an individual wolf's life. It's only the people who have begun their lives and careers assuming that the population of, let's say, wolves in this case, has value that can blithely kill an individual wolf to protect some private property like livestock that's being raised for profit. See, if you take the view of intergenerational equity, the broad public interest includes the interest of future generations and youths and current adults. And as equals, the, the current adult who raises livestock as property for profit is doing something that's in their own self-interest, but doesn't necessarily have much interest for youth and future generations. And if they have an equal say, they might vote in favor of the wolf. Don't kill the wolf. And ideally, we, we can protect both livestock and wolves without killing either of them. So for me, the ethical debate is super interesting, but I'm also looking for these solutions where nobody dies. Nothing has to die uh, just to protect private property. We have the tools at our disposal to do better than this. Yeah, and that's part of that building research and repeatability that we're seeing. Um, <clears throat> thanks yeah. to yourself and several of your colleagues, uh, I get copied mm -hmm. on emails about new studies at times, and it just it's piling up. Yeah, uh, absolutely. So I, I think that's, you know, that's another, uh, we've had that conversation, in fact. Um, yeah. And I'll I mean, traditional it. wildlife management has three legs to the stool, and it looks like two of those legs are very weak and crumbling. Those mm -hmm. two legs are that you need lethal control to deal with problematic wildlife. We're finding, uh, we're finding very little evidence that that actually works, and we're finding alternatives to it. And the second stool that's crumbling is that you need to kill troublesome wildlife where people are going to poach them. We're actually finding the opposite. If you kill troublesome wildlife, poaching seems to increase. Yeah, that's that's one of your works that I have uh, I cite regularly in conversation because I think it's very indicative of yeah. uh, that, that connection between government action and human behavior. Um, yeah. Now, looking at the map of, uh, you've got a wonderful map. And again, it, for, for someone without the, the training, it looks kind of weird at first. Um, but looking at the map of where there are protections, uh, so constitutional provisions for a healthy environment. And it is surprising that two nations right next to each other, uh, well, three, I guess, um, but two that I'm thinking of, uh, who pride themselves on having wild places and nature, whose tourism is heavily based on accessibility to these things have no explicit mention. So the Canada and the United States governments, um, the Canadian government and the United States governments have no explicit mention, but we are 
uh, successful countries, we're wealthy countries, we're educated countries, and we clearly recognize the value of nature uh, just based on the way we live our lives. Is there something in our history that separates us from what generally looks like most of the rest of the world? Yeah, there is. Excellent question, Michael. Um, so quite a few of the countries that have uh, roots in the British Empire adopted what's called common law. That's uh, just a sort of a fancy term for the law made by judges, so court precedents. So quite a few of those countries, including the U.S. and Canada, basically inherited our common law about the public trust from Britain. And what does that mean? It means that rather than embedding or codifying environmental protections in our constitutions, we've instead dealt with environmental protection as a uh, common law public trust issue, meaning the courts resolve it by looking to precedence. So I'm going to now switch gears and just talk about the U.S. Mm -hmm. It's important. Um, as long ago as 1842, the U.S. Supreme Court in a case uh, involving Martin, it's called Martin v. Waddell, um, the, the Supreme Court of the U.S. declared that all of these things we now call the environment or nature, all of these things are in the public trust. They belong to current and future generations of citizens of the U.S. And the Supreme Court then did an elaborate listing to be sure we understood that they meant everything in the environment. So it's a, it's a fun read if you like 19th century English. All right, fast forward to the present day. There are now youths in court in Oregon, in the federal district court, challenging U.S. federal government climate policy because the youths allege that the atmosphere is being damaged by greenhouse gases to such an extent that it threatens prosperity and health and well-being for their generation and future generations. So this is the today's expression of this public trust doctrine, that the government cannot allow or itself impair the public trust in the environment that includes the atmosphere. And they are pointing to case law as far back as 1892 or the 1842 court, uh, court case that I mentioned. They're pointing to these legal precedents that come from British common law to say it's in there in in case law made by judges, but they're also pointing to the U.S. Constitution. Even though the U.S. Constitution doesn't mention the environment, it does have three clauses that allow citizens to sue the government when the government fails to protect their vital interests. So just to wrap up, Michael, and answer your question more directly, yes, there's some countries that are colored this uh, kind of weird yellow in our map that do not have constitutional protections written into their constitutions, the fundamental supreme laws of each country. Nevertheless, many of these do have protections for the environment under various forms of the public trust doctrine, basically saying that current and future generations are jointly the beneficiaries of a healthy and unimpaired environment. 
All right, and we're short on time, but I do want to ask one question, and it's probably the hardest question of all of them, so I left it for when we're short on time. And um, <laughs> the Both of these studies, uh, well, the study and the paper, I should say, indicate that what we're doing now is not enough. And they both importantly point to, if we don't change, there are going to be problems. Um, and we see those problems now, but I think it's it sort of as population increases and as the environment shifts, etc., it's going to be worse. So as a researcher, as someone who spends a lot of time working on large carnivore issues, as someone who spends a lot of time looking at coexistence and policy, and who has a firm grasp on some of the history, what can people do to play a role in improving this? Whether we are talking about our, our younger audience, typically around the age of 16, I think, up to our, our older audience who are in their 60s and 70s listening to this. What are the one or two things to start to make a difference in both of these realms that we've discussed? Yeah, so we are facing a global ecosystem collapse if we don't reverse course. And that means the current generation that can vote they must vote with more than economic self-interest in mind. They have to think about our grandchildren and what kind of a planet we're leaving them as a legacy. So we need to vote for politicians who are going to uphold the trustee duties, who are going to uphold the constitutional principles on which our democracies are based. And for those youths listening who cannot vote yet, you still have power when you convince the voters around you to act in a certain way, when you convince lawmakers and the executive and the judicial branch to listen to you. So the youth in the U.S. are in U.S. federal court because they could not vote to change and protect, to change policies and to protect their future. Because they couldn't vote, their only recourse was the judicial system, the courts. So I'm encouraging a peaceful revolution to um okay let me not use that word because people <laughs> will misunderstand it and quote it out of context i am encouraging peaceful non-violent forms of resistance against the current systems of our government that encourage over exploitation of nature we have to get back to preserving nature for our grandchildren michael and the science backs it up yeah it does to read either study by Dr. Trevis and his colleagues, click on the links in this week's show notes or visit the Defender Radio blog at thefurbears.com. That's it for this week, folks. I want to thank Dr. Trevis for joining me again and all of you for listening. Remember to share the podcast with your friends and family and follow me on Facebook and Twitter at Defender Radio and Instagram at Howie Michael to stay up to date on what I'm up to, see my adventures in Hamilton, and maybe one or two cute pictures of dogs. Until next time, this is Michael Howie for Defender Radio and the Fur Bears reminding you to stay informed and stay strong. Stay strong.